Hey folks, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about the Consumer VC Summit. The Consumer VC Summit is a three-day virtual event that is focused on e-commerce, retail, and innovation. This is all happening February 23rd through 25th, 2021. Mark Nathan and I have really poured our souls into it. During the day is a mix of talks and panel discussions with some incredible founders and investors that focus on these sectors. In the evenings, we're going to be throwing networking events, and if you're a founder, you'll also have access to mentoring sessions, which means you'll meet three investors or industry professionals for feedback about your business. All of our talks and panels will also be available for replay with a ticket. Please check out summit.theconsumervc.com and enter ConsumerVC for a 20% discount. This is also located in the show notes. We look forward to seeing you there. Now on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the role of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you enjoy this show, please tell a friend or colleague about it and help spread the word. If you want to also search for other episodes or learn about some of the other resources that are available to you, head over to theconsumervc.com. My guest today is Jeff Hausenbold. Managing partner of SoftBank's Vision Fund, the world's largest technology-focused venture capital fund with over $100 billion in capital. Some of Jeff's investments include DoorDash, Compass, Opendoor, and Whoop. Previously, Jeff was the CEO of Shutterfly. We discuss how he approaches investment themes, how he identifies opportunity on the value chain, and markets that are ripe for disruption. Without further ado, here's Jeff. Jeff, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm doing great, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for being here. So, you know, in your career, I mean, it seems like you've kind of done it all as it relates to business in your career. And I'd love to know what led you to joining SoftBank and becoming part of the Vision Fund. I've had um, an interesting career. And um, when I look back, I wouldn't really change much. And I was about to go be a CEO again. And I got introduced to Mawson. He was starting this rumor to be starting the $100 billion vision fund, which had never been done before. And at that point in time, the next largest venture fund was about $1.1 billion. And I went to see him not because it was come join the vision fund. It was because I was going to raise capital for this company I was going to go be the CEO of. And I got to meet with Masa in Tokyo, and we had a really lovely 90-minute discussion. And somewhere in the middle, he said, you know, I really like you. You have amazing background. You understand technology. You understand investing. You're well-connected in Silicon Valley. Would you like to be a founding managing partner of the Vision Fund? And I said, well, tell me more about where your head is, what the vision is. What do you want to accomplish? And through that discussion, what dawned upon me was I can help build a new company, be an entrepreneur. I can see dozens and dozens of great companies and be able to give back and mentor and coach CEOs, which I had done uh, quite a bit through my relationships with Kleiner Perkins and TPG and Sutter Hill and others. And I could be at the forefront of helping to build truly transformational companies. And so I just dove off the deep end of the pier. And uh, said, well, give me a couple of days. I went around the world, met some people from SoftBank, 
And then I said yes, and that was nearly four years ago. That's fantastic. Really quite hilarious how you went thinking that you were going to be a CEO for a company, but ended up you know, becoming one of the managing partners of really something that's pretty revolutionary. As you said, at the time, the highest assets under management venture capital fund was $1 billion. Now you're managing $100 billion. No one else has done this before. I'd love to know, since really, as I say, no one has done this before, how do you approach risk and portfolio construction when you're managing $100 billion? Yeah, it's a really good question. It's not that dissimilar from how you do it on a billion dollar fund or a hundred million dollar fund. Essentially, what you want to do is think about sector allocation, geographic allocation, stage of the company, pre-revenue, revenue, lots of revenue, pre-IPO, public. You want to think about what is the risk reward and making sure that you're not putting too much of your fund into a single asset class or into a single bet. And so every asset manager and every venture capitalist has to go through that process. It's not dissimilar. There's just more zeros. The harder part is finding enough quality companies to be able to invest that quantum of money because you want to make sure that you're getting a great return for the LPs. And so you have to maintain the discipline on a bigger scale. That's actually a harder endeavor than you would think. Yeah, I can only imagine. I'd say, what's your process of deploying capital and and how do you think about stage average check size and, you know, almost like the rest of the venture ecosystem and where you would kind of slot in. So in venture fund and the vision fund one, our minimum check was a hundred million dollars in vision fund two, we have more flexibility to write smaller earlier stage checks. And the way I thought about going to market to deploying the capital was picking six or seven sectors that I thought had the opportunity to be truly revolutionized by technology, that new startups could disintermediate incumbents, where those TAMs or those addressable markets were very large. And so if you think about the areas where I've spent um, the last three and a half years, commercial and residential real estate, which is 16% of global GDP, so the largest asset class. Food, which is in the trillions, and luckily humans eat three, four, five times a day. Transportation, travel and experiences, digital health in marketplaces. So what my team and I would do is we'd go out and do a landscape study in the industry. I spent five and a half years as a strategy consultant and something we would do in strategy consulting. Understand the entire value chain where the economic rents are, where we thought technology was transforming that part of the industry. Who are the incumbents? Who are the new rising stars? And we'd go out and meet with everyone. And I would tell everyone, we're just getting smart about the industry. And everyone would meet with me. And I'd say, don't tell me anything you're not comfortable telling me, but help me get up to speed. Understand what your story is and what your vision is and how you're trying to impact your respective industry. And then we would step back and we would pick the handful of companies we want to invest in. And when you look at my investments, more than half of the 16 companies I invested in weren't even raising capital. But through that partnership, through that dialogue, through that exploration of what is possible, we were able to come to terms and have the entrepreneur realize that we can amplify his or her ambition, that we provide not just capital, but counsel and connections on a global basis. And that led to some really interesting uh, relationships and the ability to invest in companies when they weren't necessarily in the fundraising mode. No, that's that's really helpful. And since you are, you know, very thematic, I know previously we spoke about how you create, I think, like a hundred page deck focusing on one sector. Are you ever worried? Because I also have on investors that are generalists. And from the generalist perspective, why they aren't thematic, there are 
argument is that they believe that if they were thematic and built out these, you know, research reports, essentially, they could end up missing an industry. Do you ever think being so thematic that you might be prone to that or not so much? I don't think so. And by the way, I think both styles work. And I'm not suggesting we just have one. I would say I'm 80% thematic and 20% opportunistic because particularly in the technology sector, the world changes very, very quick, right? If you look at Peloton and Tonal and Mirror and Hydro and Tempo, right, in the at-home exercise space, or you look at wellness and mental health apps, those are all kind of rising in this age of COVID that while they were companies before it, they're really coming into their age because of that shifting consumer awareness and the demand curve is moving quicker than they thought. So we will have done work on the digital health wellness space. We will have done work on the fitness exercise space. And so we have pattern recognition and then we'll be able to latch on to things that are new trends with that grounding, with that foundation of understanding of the industry so we can move quicker. And so if you think about investing in the public space or the private space, there are momentum investors and they're fundamental investors. And I could give you examples of both of which people have been incredibly successful and examples where people have been incredibly unsuccessful. And so there's not a either or better or worse. It's more up to the stylistic. And what I believe is pattern recognition makes you a better investor because you don't have to rely on luck as much. You're relying on facts and data. No, totally. I completely agree. One of my previous guests, Daniel Galati, always says in this subject, there's no one way to skin a cat. So there's many different styles to investing. So when you're going out and meeting with CEOs and meeting with these companies that, you know, maybe aren't currently fundraising, but maybe there's interest in your area, what gets you excited about the company? What criteria do you look for maybe in CEOs or just companies in general? Yeah, let me start with people because... They are fundamental to the success of any individual company because ideas are relatively a dime a dozen, and it's really about execution. And so what I look for is the same thing I look for in all the teams that I've built when I was an operator and when I was an investor. I look for very intelligent, very motivated, ambitious, hardworking, low ego, high integrity, team-oriented people. And when I'm sitting down with an entrepreneur or a founder and I'm speaking with her, what I also look for is I look for authenticity, that the specific problem that they're trying to solve is something that is bothering them on a personal basis that they're willing to devote so much of their energy to solving. I've met people like, hey, well, I worked at an enterprise software company and I wanted to start my own company. And so, you know, I did X, but it wasn't really about passion. It was about just starting a company. And um, again, you could be successful that way, but the odds are lower versus take Tony Shu at DoorDash. He grew up working in his mom's Chinese restaurant or take Robert Refkin at Compass, another one of my portfolio companies. He grew up, his mom was a real estate agent and he would go do open houses and help her, right? It's that authenticity of their experience or Eric Wu who had started previous real estate companies before starting Open Door. So I look for that. I also look for a few other things. I look for flexibility mindset and growth mindset, someone who has conviction in their beliefs, but also the flexibility to change their mind in the face of new data, in the face of macroeconomic changes, consumer taste changes, or competitive changes. And so you want to be steadfast and firm in your worldview, but you have to be flexible to be able to move because starting a company and, and growing a company is not a static thing. 
No, I completely agree. I mean, there's no one right reason as to why someone should start a company. But I always think that sometimes the CEOs that are most interesting are those that actually, you know, really almost fell into entrepreneurship for per se. They just were so fixated on addressing that one pain point that they decided to become an entrepreneur, not because they necessarily wanted to be, if you know what I mean. Exactly. And so that's what I look for in the people. And then you also ask, what else do you look for? Well, like every venture capitalist, we get excited by really large addressable markets, a novel and innovative approach to solving that market, and um, good unit economics or business model. And so you have to have those. Those are necessary, but not sufficient. You then need to have a great management team and people who are what I call talent magnets, who can attract the best and brightest to their vision, even when they don't even have a product or a single dollar of revenue. Because fundamentally, it's those slope changers and individuals that really create success. Now, when you look at these big markets, for example, food, how do you break down in terms of what part of the value chain you should spend your time and is actually investable that actually could grow to the size of returns that SoftBank would require? Well, let's take food. You have everything from seed development to planting to growing and harvesting, to processing those ingredients, to distribution. Then you have restaurants. And within restaurants, you have small mom and pops, you have regional chains, you have very large chains, you have eat in, you have uh, takeout, you have delivery, you have the POS system in a restaurant, you have the need to manage labor, you need to be able to attract customers and marketing. You have supply chain and purchasing of the ingredients. So within food, it's actually a very, very large market in the trillions. And there's complexity along each step of that value chain and within each one of those subsets. So once you understand that, and then you look at, well, who's making the money? Where are the economic rents in, in economic parlance? And in a Porter's Five Forces, what's the concentration in that particular value chain. Sometimes it's highly fragmented and then it gets difficult to gain scale. Sometimes in a highly fragmented market, that's an advantage because if you could use technology to do what others couldn't do, you could gain scale where many couldn't. And so you just have to be uh, thoughtful and smart and it's very idiosyncratic to each industry. And so you have to go one by one. So in food, the places that I got excited about was on one end, how do we meet the ever-growing demand where we need to increase global food output by 80 to 100% by 2050. And we have to do that in a sustainable way because global warming and the impacts to natural resources, water, land, air, greenhouse gases, climate, ozone, are very, very real. And so that's how I came to invest in Plenty, a vertical farming company that is building and growing nutritiously dense, great tasting fruits and vegetables it, using one to 5% of the water of a traditional farm, no pesticides, and also about one one hundredth of the space in the land or Memphis meats that is growing proteins, chicken, beef, pork, and duck in labs using actual cells without the need to harm an animal and without all of the diseases that are prevalent when you slaughter uh, animals and without the impact of growing corn and water and transportation and the impacts to our climate. That's an area I got very interested in because it's not that we're going to replace the tradition, traditional modality, is we need to augment it by necessity of the demand curve. And then on the other end, in food delivery, and that led to investments in the Vision Fund in DoorDash, Uber Eats, Rappi, Watermark, Ola, 99, Didi, uh, LMA, and Alibaba, and Grab. 
And so we're the largest investor in food delivery and people transportation on a global basis. So that gives you some flavor. We thought technology was going to fundamentally change the game. No, that's amazing and really helpful. I really appreciate you. I know, obviously, in a few moments there, breaking down different examples of parts of the value chain where you really focus on in terms of where you actually see the margin. You know, I also wanted to focus and talk a little bit about e-commerce. Obviously, this is accelerated massively during COVID. And, you know, there's a lot of technology investors that have become disinterested in investing in digitally native brands. And I'm just curious if you're still open to investing in brands or is most of your focus more in like the underlying tech infrastructure as it relates to e-commerce? No, it's both. But I will say having been an e-commerce guy for a large swath of my career, that building large e-commerce companies is very difficult, right? You could grow a, a nice vertical commerce company. It could be in fashion or beauty or wellness or athleisure. But if you look across venture-backed companies, many of those companies struggle to get above two or three or $400 million in revenue. And so early early stage venture capitalists who are putting $2 million into a series A or eight or 10 into a series B can make a very nice return. If you're the vision fund, it gets harder because the size of those enterprises tend to get capped. So where I get excited is looking at horizontal e-commerce plays um, that um, you're basically aggregating demand and you're getting greater share of wallet versus just one point, uh, uh, one use uh, case or one point of sale. And so very open to digitally native brands. What would get me more interested, and I've been looking at this, is people who are saying, you know what, there's 15 different beauty brands or there are brands selling to women between 18 and 35. What if we do a roll up and have a house of brands sitting on the same common technology platform using data analytics to make predictive suggestions about what they want? And I have a, a wider selection of products and use occasions in which I could sell to the same customer. So I'm amortizing my acquisition costs more effectively. Those are the types of things that get me more excited and interested than someone who is selling a limited set of beauty products to millennial and Gen Z women. No, that's that's really helpful. And I really appreciate the example. Do you think that we're going to be seeing more roll-ups in the future of brands? I do, but I also think as those companies get bigger and roll up, you're going to see a backfill of new emerging companies come, particularly in e-commerce and certain sectors of e-commerce, where you have fashion or, or technological obsolescence, where you have kind of um, fad or changing consumer taste. And with the advent of things like Google Cloud and Microsoft Azure and Amazon AWS, with things like Shopify and Wix and Big Commerce and GoDaddy and others, the cost and the difficulty of starting a new company is so much easier today than when I was doing it in the early 1990s. And so I believe you're going to have and the access to capital is much greater. So you'll continue to have hundreds and hundreds of new companies coming to fruition. What will get harder is the ability then to break through that noise and to build a large enterprise and a company that's built for last versus built for fad. Absolutely. I, I totally agree. We talk about the noise quite a bit on this podcast in terms of on one hand, it's never been a better time to start a business or an e-commerce business because it's you know very, very easy. There's not a lot of friction to do it and not a lot of upfront costs. Thanks for likes of uh, Shopify and, and what have you. But at the same time, that means so much more competition. It's so hard to find that authenticity as well. I know you made a few, obviously one of your 
focus in the food space is food delivery. Congrats on DoorDash. That's amazing what's happened recently. And I know you invested also in, in, in OrderMark this past year, which makes it, of course, easier for restaurants to manage delivery. What are some next opportunities that you're finding in this space? Yeah, well, think about Watermark. They're just at the beginning. And you have a remarkable young CEO in Alex Cantor there, his fifth generation restaurateur, and his family owns Cantor Deli in LA. If you haven't been, it's my favorite place for a pastrami on the West Coast. And again, think about authenticity. He grew up in the restaurant. He spent his summers, you know, being a waiter and a busboy and a cashier and learning the business, goes off to college, comes back to the family business. And he watches how hard his mom and dad work for a single store. Now, it happens to be one of the largest restaurants in the country, but it's a single location. And he's thinking, how do I use technology to help restaurants have more sales, more sales and more profit, more profit, a better lifestyle for the entrepreneurs who own that restaurant. And he started Watermark as a software technology company to help restaurants manage all of the delivery companies. You had Grubhub, you had Uber, you had Postmates, you had Waiters on Wheel, and obviously you had DoorDash, and that industry has consolidated. And so the evolution of that and through that dialogue and discussion with those restaurateurs and his own pattern recognition, he said, you know what? We have underutilized capacity in our manufacturing plant. It just happens to be called a kitchen. And if I could get greater utilization, amortizing those fixed costs, I can make greater profit per incremental order. And you know, mom and pop restaurants live literally day to day, week to week. Do they have more cash in the cash register than they started the week? They're doing better. And so he decided after looking at ghost kitchens and virtual kitchens and cloud kitchens to launch the next bite, a component of order mark helping these mom and pops have greater flexibility, serve a wider number of customers, drive higher profitability, and be more successful. And what a perfect time to do that because these entrepreneurs are struggling in COVID as people can't go into restaurants. And so their delivery businesses are taking off, sitting on the next bite platform. It is truly a win-win-win. It's a win for the restaurants. It's a win for order market. It's a win for the delivery companies. And it's a win for the end consumers who have more choice, convenience, and more timely deliveries. So if you think about that, that's just starting to scratch the surface. But restaurants are small businesses. How could you help them manage their hourly workforce more efficiently? How could you pull together the aggregation of supply? So if you think about the thousands of restaurants that are on the DoorDash platform that happen to be Italian restaurants, they're all ordering mozzarella, they're ordering pasta, they're ordering garlic, right? but they're all ordering them one at a time. They're not getting scope and scale economies. Is there a business that brings that together to do a group buying, but then be able to skip some of the middle layers in that value chain and be able to help the farmers who are struggling in this country as well. So if you know you're a tomato farmer and you know you'll be able to sell out 100% of your output to this collective, let's just call it the Italian Food Collective, and they all have to order tomatoes and sauce, and you know that your output has a guarantee at a certain price. So that allows you to hire more people to tend to your farm. You have more guarantees, so the bank gives you a loan. Isn't that a win-win? everybody. So those are some of the things that I'm looking at that are, you know, less typical venture capital, but that's where technology is changing. Or think about how drones and data is driving better output for farmers, which is better for our economy and better for our food supply. About 44% of all food that is grown in this country ends up in a landfill. 44%. Yet we all know people who are struggling to eat three squares a day. How do we change that, which is better for Mother Earth and better for everyone if we can be more efficient in the entire food value chain? 
Wow. Thanks for sharing those examples. That's uh, really, really compelling in terms of just how you're actually seeing opportunities, especially, I mean, focusing there in terms of food. That's amazing. I know another area of focus as well is real estate. You know, you were investors in Open Door as well as uh, Compass. What are some current trends? We haven't really covered much about real estate technology on the show, so I'd love to also dive in there. What are some current trends that you're focused on? And has COVID changed your perception of all of that industry? Since obviously right now with commercial real estate, it's a very difficult place to be to say the least? Yeah, great questions, Mike. So break down real estate into a basic premise. You have commercial and you have residential. Let me tackle commercial for a moment. Obviously, commercial real estate is being negatively impacted by COVID. You have many stores and many retailers that are filing for bankruptcy. That means there's less tenants to pay rent. That means you have your asset sitting underutilized and you're not receiving any cash flow. So commercial real estate is struggling. On the other hand, on residential real estate, COVID is a tailwind and it's booming. And we happen to be investors in Compass and Open Door, two great entrepreneurs and two great investments that my team and I led. But they attack the very large residential real estate industry from different perspectives. Compass is the Shopify of residential real estate. They provide an enterprise class technology platform for mom and pop entrepreneurs who happen to be real estate brokers. And so just like Shopify for many other industries help entrepreneurs get online, manage their books, manage their experience, that is exactly what Compass does for residential real estate brokers. So that she has more time, and 85% of real estate agents are women, she has more time to spend with clients versus on the back office functions of figuring out how to get a listing out, figuring out how to market the listing, um, pulling together comps to discuss um, price and negotiation, dealing with vendors for staging, being able to help their clients with escrow and title and closing and all of the things you need to do to buy a home. And so Compass provides that platform so agents are more productive. And the people who come onto Compass, when they leave their the agency they're with, when they come onto Compass, they see on average 25 to 30 percent increase in the amount of commissions they make on a yearly basis. But they focus on kind of the higher end, $500,000 and higher end homes. And that business is booming. Prices that are all-time highs because there's a dearth of single-family homes in America. And so Compass is benefiting from COVID. When we made the investment, they were you know, roughly $15 billion in uh, uh, gross merchandise sale or, or resale value. And now they're approaching $200 billion, the third largest real estate broker in America. And with their growth rate relative to the incumbent should be number one in two short years. On the other side of the spectrum, you have Open Door, who's providing a technology platform to make it easier for buyers and sellers to conduct a transaction without even having to step foot into the home. Virtual tours, virtual escrow, the ability to give you an instant quote to buy the home for you so that you have the money to buy your next home. Or, you know, as people are downsizing, as the kids go to college or they're going into adult communities later on in life, sometimes you need to move quickly. Or unfortunately, when people lose their job, they need to sell their house to downsize. And so Open Door is about two hundred to 300000 in price point in different cities. Um, providing a uh, different experience. Both can coexist very, very successfully because it's such an enormous addressable market. And both are seeing tremendous tailwinds uh, from COVID, but both fundamentally are using technology to provide a better experience for everyone involved in the transaction. 
No, that's that's really helpful. And I appreciate you breaking that down in terms of some of the differences as well between Open Door and Compass. Compass being a bit more on the B2B side and Open Door being very much B2C uh, per se. And I know, you know, Open Door, it went public via Chamas SPAC. And I wanted to know on this show, we've talked about some of the effects of SPACs when it comes to food and beverage businesses, CPG businesses, but we actually haven't talked about some of the effects of SPACs when it comes to technology businesses. So I'd love to dive in and learn about, because I know SPACs have become pretty popular in the past couple of years. We'd love to learn how you're thinking about the landscape when it comes to SPACs as it relates to technology businesses. Yeah, let me try to demystify SPACs a little bit because they are a relatively new instrument that people are not as familiar with. Though they've been around for quite a while, they were a relatively small part of the financial community. A SPAC is a shell company that's created, basically a search fund that has a two-year life. So the principals who start the SPAC, they go out and people invest in that SPAC. Let's say I create a $300 million SPAC. I now have two years to go find a company to acquire into this shell. And then you do what's called the SPACing and then that company trades on one of the public exchanges. And the benefits of the SPAC is that you get to file what's called a form S-4 with the SEC. And in an S-4, since it's actually a merger, not an initial public offering, you get to talk about your business on a prospective basis. So take Open Door, for example. It's a couple five years old. It has an enormous future in front of them. But iBuying is a relatively new concept, and it's difficult to explain where this company is and where it's going. And so through the S4 and the merger with Edosphia B and Chamath, we were able to explain that to investors with very, very good receptivity in the marketplace, evidenced by the price of which the SPAC is trading. And so the, a, a large benefit of a SPAC is I could talk about the future. When I file an S1, a traditional initial public offering, I can only talk about the past. And so it limits these younger companies from helping people truly understand where they're headed in the story. The second benefit of a SPAC is the way you then fund the ongoing operations of the company or the primary capital you would raise equivalent in a traditional IPO is called a pipe. And that is a public investment in a private equity. And so you know with certainty how much capital you're going to have at the end of this merger process. And so that gives you greater ability to plan the use of proceeds. But both of them are very, very similar in that they help companies go public. And what people miss, a SPAC is not a shortcut to being a public company. You still have to be SOX compliant. You have to be able to recognize your revenue. You have to be able to close the books accurately and timely and your systems have to be up to par. They're just different vehicles. And you also have seen over the last 18 to 24 months, direct listings. So all three of these are arrows in the quiver for companies to consider how they want to tap the public markets. And I think what it's saying is that the traditional IPO market needs to continually evolve. It's run as an oligopoly by a handful of the largest banks, and it has multiple agendas. You're serving the institutional investors. You're serving the company that's going public. You're serving the private investors. And they need to evolve that to have a better optimized outcome. And I think SPACs and direct listings are rising in popularity as a proof point that we need faster and better evolution of the way that companies can go public. I totally agree. I've heard Bill Girdley talk about the subject quite a bit in terms of the IPO and 
how, you know, everyone, of course, wants that bump on the first day, which is great. But at the same time, that's actually only helping like the investment bankers. It's actually not helping the founders and the entrepreneur, as well as obviously the venture capital funds and private equity funds that also were investors when the company was private. I think just to help demystify the subject as well, what would be maybe a reason why a company might choose to go public via a SPAC versus a direct listing? Yeah. So I've been sitting in a lot of boardrooms where that discussion is um, the topic. And with uh, last count, I saw 171 different SPACs have been formed. And since SoftBank has invested in late stage technology companies, you can imagine that many of those SPACs are reaching out to our portfolio companies. And again, there is no right answer. At the end of the day, six months after going public, either through a SPAC, a reverse merger or a traditional IPO, no one will remember. No one remembers who your lead left banker was. No one remembers that Google did a reverse Dutch auction when they went public. At the end of the day, 6, 12, 18 months later, your stock is going to be trading on your fundamentals. You have a good business model. Are you executing? Are you doing what you said? And are you saying what you're doing? And so I think a lot of hype is made of it because, you know, financial journalists and tech journalists like to write about it. And Silicon Valley likes to, you know, do a little bit of navel gazing. But at the end of the day, there's no bad choice. Again, the benefit are a little bit no ability about how much capital you'll have, the ability to talk prospectively, and a faster, a slightly faster route to be in public. A traditional IPO has less uncertainty in that people are used to the process. It's more tried and true. But if you roll forward three, six, nine, 12 months from now, you're going to have dozens and dozens and dozens of SPACs that have been consummated. And I think those lines are going to blur and it's not really that different. It's like going to a college or a university. You're still getting a Bachelor of Science or a Bachelor's Art degree. And no one remembers if you went to Harvard or Williams, they just remember you went to college. That's a very good way to put it. It's a very good way to put it. Thank you. I'd also love to know, you know, I know you talked about how in Fund 2 at SoftBank, you have more flexibility in terms of being able to write smaller checks. I'd love to know just maybe some of the learnings from Fund 1 and maybe some of the differences that maybe it could be a sector that might be different in terms of what Fund 2 is a focus on, or I would just love your any differences in terms of the approach there when it comes to deploying capital. There's not a lot of differences, Mike, and we're still fundamentally looking for great companies using technology, robotics, computer vision, machine learning, artificial intelligence, and data to truly transform their industries. In Fund 2, we have a little more flexibility to come in earlier, and that gives us the benefit of having more proof points and writing smaller checks. And if the company's hitting those milestones, we could with greater certainty write much bigger checks in later growth funds. And that just de-risks it. And as you know, uh, the way venture works is backing up on your winners is where you truly differentiate and have outsized returns. So that's the biggest difference between the two funds. It's still global in nature. It's still technology driven. We're still looking at large TAMs and we're looking at great entrepreneurs. No, that's great and really, really helpful. Thank you. I also wanted to ask, I know you've been around, you know, the dot-com boomer bust. You've been around the 2008 crash. And now, of course, we have this pandemic. And it seems like, you know, the past 10 years when the economy was growing, you know, companies really optimized for growth and not profitability, especially in Silicon Valley. And now it seems like that tune has changed and especially has changed for the past couple of years. How do you think about unity economics, sustainability, and, you know, optimizing for growth versus profitability, maybe the age old question. Yeah, maybe I'm old school because I always believed that the greatest form of venture capital is called free cash flow. So if you're a profitable company, it gives you flexibility. And it's one of the things when I was running Shutterfly and we entered into the first quarter of OE, 
when the financial crisis started to happen, we were free cash flow positive. Now, while my stock price came down by 80%, I still had plenty of cash in the bank. I was still growing and I was generating profit. And so that allowed me during that period of time to continue to invest in innovation and R&D and differentiation. And that's when I just took a tremendous amount of market share and I crushed Kodak and Snapfish and Yahoo Photos and many of my other competitors that I ultimately ended up buying. I bought 17 of them. And so with that as pattern recognition, having lived through, as you said, um, the first wave of dot-coms, the financial crisis, Brexit, 9-11, the global pandemic, what has been proven to me is if you have a really good business model, you have fiscal discipline and you have dry powder, you can really take advantage of those um, economic dislocations as both an entrepreneur and a company, as well as an investor. So it's the investors who had dry powder, the Warren Buffetts during the financial crisis, who was able to get great deals investing in amazing companies like Goldman Sachs. And it was companies like Shutterfly that had capital a strong business model and fiscal discipline that allowed us to take market share. So in having conversations with my portfolio companies, I remind them of those facts to make sure that you're marching to positive unit economics, that you understand the levers of your business. And it's okay to be um, losing money as you're investing in growth and development, as long as you have a clear path of how you're going to move from um, not profitable to profitable and it's your conscious and strategic choice versus a weakness of your business model. No, I think that's really helpful to me in terms of, you know, how to think about growth or profitability. And I totally agree with you. Free cash flow is the best thing that you can be doing in terms of growth. I'd love to just know, I know we kind of dived in on this interview directly into SoftBank, but we'd love to learn more about maybe what are some of experiences prior to SoftBank that really helped you because you've been such a successful operator and CEO of businesses. I would love to know just based on your experience, what were some of those moments that really impacted you and made you a better investor? It's a great question. And there people come at investing from very different angles, right? Some amazing investors have been journalists. Others have been investment bankers. Some have been venture capitalists or on the buy side their whole career. And there's a group of people like myself who spent most of their career as operators and become to venture later um, with the different skills. So again, no one right uh, way to uh, become a venture capitalist, no one clear path to success. But for me, it's been an association with hyper-growth technology-enabled companies throughout my whole career, both on the consumer and on the enterprise side. And I've done both. Enterprise has better margins and consumer is just frankly more fun. And my mom understands what I do. And so um, a couple of those examples. So I joined a small startup called Raging Bull back in 1999 that was funded by CMGI, which was essentially the vision fund of the 1990s. And it was uh, one of the founders was an amazing young entrepreneur named Rusty Zurich. He was 20 years old. And uh, the three of them dropped out of college to uh, start Raging Bull. And now we call it a fintech, but it was this conversion of community, content, and commerce. And we grew that business. I was employee six. And I learned from that experience of how to successfully start, run, scale, and finance an internet-enabled consumer-facing company. Ended up selling that to Alta Vista, which was the first search engine and the Google before Google, if you remember. And I came to that as now an executive and I got to run everything but engineering. And that was doing the same thing at a higher scale on a higher stage. And then 
I went to eBay. And at eBay, we had the best collection of the smartest, most accomplished people that I've seen in my entire career, more than investment banking, more than strategic consulting. Because eBay came of age when uh, the dot-com bust happened and everyone was leaving other companies. And we got to pick, Meg got to handpick and develop it leaders who had amazing experiences, some of the smartest people. And so many of us have gone on to run companies and ultimately become venture capitalists. And so there I learned how to build a global company, how to build brand, how to acquire customers. I was Google's first customer ever. I was um, one of the first three customers for Pinterest, Facebook, Instagram, and Groupon as well. And so I really honed in on the marketing chops that I had previously in my career. I happened to win best commercial of the year, and I got to do it on a much bigger platform and build amazing marketing customer acquisition teams. And then I went to Shutterfly. It was a startup again. I joined with a hundred people. We were losing money about to go bankrupt. I was the fourth CEO in three short years. And there I learned how to effectively pivot on the kernel of a great idea, but to bring the discipline of having been a leader in a large public company like eBay and that pattern recognition to turn around a startup with a great idea and faulty execution and scale that and build not just a brand that touched people's hearts, but to build a culture that was recognized as one of the 20 best mid-sized companies to work for three different times in America. And so I came of age as a leader there. And then I brought that to SoftBank, where I now have that wealth of experience to be able to sit down in an authentic way and talk to entrepreneurs about what it's like to make a mishire for a CFO or to have to run out and get emergency financing or what it means to you know start your first international operation or to raise venture capital or to take a company public. So when I look back, I wouldn't do anything different. I've had a number of different experiences in different industries, but I think it's that pattern recognition as an operator that makes me a better investor. No, I really appreciate that. And yeah, I mean, you've had an incredible career to say the least. I love to know since you, you know, navigated Shutterfly through that very successful pivot, what makes a successful pivot? And, you know, when you invest, when you look at companies, how do you think about whether a company maybe should pivot? Because it's such a tough thing, I'd imagine, for a company to go through. It really is. And you start with, do you have the right management team? And do you have a kernel of either the right idea or the right technology? I've been involved as an investor where we tried to pivot a couple of times and we just didn't get there. I've had other times where CEO said, I, I just don't see the pivot. We should return the capital. And I've had other times where they pivoted and they struck on the right idea. Think about how Slack started, right? Stuart was doing something very different in the photo space and they built a internal communication tool to help augment their own internal processes. And that became Slack. That is one of the most amazing pivots that you see in the marketplace. And that happens to be one our successful portfolio companies. Other pivots, look at what Mark and Cheryl and the team at Facebook did when they were a desktop company facing an existentialist threat from a mobile-only company called Instagram. Their pivot was, one, buying Instagram that looked very expensive at the time. And second, Mark told everyone, do not come to me with a project if it's not about mobile. And he had the foresight to pivot to mobile. Otherwise, Facebook would likely not be what Facebook is today. So sometimes there are amazing successful pivots like that. And sometimes they don't work. But it comes down to, one, do you have enough capital in the bank? And two, do you have a team who has clarity as to what we learn, what are the mistakes we learn, and how do we take those and see a brighter path forward? 
No, I really appreciate all those examples. I mean, the, the one with uh, Mark Zuckerberg, it shows you also go where the users are or their customers are and having that foresight and knowing how mobile is going to really transform, you know, everything in terms of what we do, you know, becoming from maybe the desktop laptop to mobile in terms of also just the amount we all look at our phones now. So what's one thing you would change regarding venture capital? That's a really good question. No one's asked me that before. I'm going to give you more than one uh, because it's such a good question. A couple of things I would change about venture capital. Most funds are 10 years with two-year extensions. In the case of the Vision Fund, we're 12 uh, with a two-year extension. And so we think long-term in some ways, but I see a lot of short-term mindedness out of venture capitalists. Sometimes that's driven by the fund needs some exits because they're trying to raise their next fund. Sometimes it's a partner wants to get promoted. Sometimes it's that partner left and the asset or the portfolio company is abandoned. Sometimes people are trying to time market cycles. Building a business is hard. The average company in America is 13 years old before it goes public. And the average hold period in Silicon Valley, if you're venture backed, is about 8.3 years. So I'd like to see a better matching of that long-term nature with the short-term behavior. You also have that short-term mindedness in the public markets as well. Public investors are like, what did you do for me in the last quarter? And sometimes they're less tolerable about companies that are investing for the future. You have some amazing examples that get to buck that trend. Jeff Bezos has always been able to have a long-term mindedness and attract investors that would stick with him with that. And I think Elon Musk has had that uh, ability uh, as well, particularly of late. But near mortal companies tend to have much shorter-term investor bases. And so I think we sub-optimize overall returns and innovation for that short-term mindedness. You look at European companies, they tend to report earnings just twice a year, not four times. So I think there's a lesson there. So that would be one. Second is I would wish that entrepreneurs take a longer-term view and a little less ego in terms of what their top-line valuation is, because sometimes they do unorthodox and things to try to get a headline because they so much want a billion dollar unicorn valuation. And there tends to be a lot of structure on those deals. They make short-term decisions to drive short-term results instead of building long-term of the franchise. So I think both of those is building businesses, being an entrepreneur, having success is extremely hard. And you have to realize it's a marathon, not a sprint. So attract when, when entrepreneurs are picking their capital partners. If you have the luxury of choice, because sometimes you just have to take whoever's going to give you money. If you have the luxury of choice, be thoughtful about who you're partnering with because you're going to be involved with those people for five, seven, 10 years. And like a marriage, that decision of who you surround yourself with is much more impactful than people think. Yeah, I, I agree. And maybe a third thing to change about venture capital to your last point about, you know, picking the right partners when it comes to investors. You know, a lot of these investing rounds go so fast, so fast. And so I think if you have many suitors, it's hard to know who the right partner would be because every situation is different. When even when you're researching investors and, and maybe talking to their portfolio companies, the ones that they give out are going to probably say positive things about the fund, right? So I think that also the fact that all this happens so fast and yet it's such a long-term relationship that's also pretty tough to navigate to agreed so what's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally ah so you know we all have those seminal moments when you're coming of age and the fountainhead was just a book that really 
opened my eyes and and uh, when I was 13 years old and something that I've reread about 10 times and it's not a small book it's a big book and so the fountainhead is something that I really have enjoyed and then on the professional side the books that have influenced me are really what I would call the combination of psychoanalysis and leadership there are books about understanding yourself with self-actualization and realization and understanding your strengths and weaknesses your genius zone super competent competent, incompetent, and and what are your gaps? And that leads you to thinking about leadership and management of how do you surround yourself with people who have complementary uh, skills and what kind of culture and values and behaviors you want to build and how do you bring that to life? So those are that's the kind of genre that I enjoy uh, reading about is different perspectives. And some of those are more psychology books. Some of those are things about Buddhism and philosophy, and some of those are more hardcore things you'd find on a Harvard Business Review bestselling list. But ultimately, a company is a collection of people, and us humans, we're um, suboptimal machines. And so the hardest part about being a leader is figuring out the most effective ways to get people to come together to achieve a goal that is impossible to do alone, but possible together. No, I appreciate you talking about those two genres because certainly those two genres are very, we have a book page on uh, the Consumer VC and those two genres are, uh, books from both those areas are certainly very, very prevalent and uh, no one's yet recommended The Fountainhead. So excited to add that to the book legs. So what's one company that's on your anti-portfolio and why did you pass? Okay, so I'm going to give you the one that I look silly for passing, but one of the things that my team and I do is we do postmortems twice a year on investments we made, but also on the ones we passed on and how they're doing. And I think um, just like doctors, you learn from those mistakes. But I passed on Zoom and I had met with Blue Jeans and I met with Polycon and I met with Zoom and I met with Meetup and there was WebEx and it was like, and when I looked at it, I was like, it's just another teleconference um, capability. It's it's largely undifferentiated. And I didn't see how it was better than the others. Sure, it had a few different features, but I could tell you the features and functionality of the competitors that I like better or worse. And I didn't see how that was going to take off, but also grab that amount of market share. Because if you think about it, how could Cisco let that happen, right? And they had WebEx. And how could Microsoft allow that to happen with Skype? And how could Google allow that to happen with Google Meeting? And so when I saw these new upstarts like Zoom, I was like, well, you have these large incumbents. It's not a very sexy purchase. You're dealing with some you know, purchasing manager, CIO, CTO, you know, about teleconferencing. It's a functionality. There's no emotionality to it. It's going to be about who has the best cost relative to features. And what I didn't see was great execution on the part of that company. And I certainly didn't predict COVID and that every school organization and business needs a communication platform in a very different way. So I missed such an amazing run uh, in that company. Thanks so much for sharing. But, you know, like looking at it from your perspective and the reason why you passed, like it, it makes sense. You know, Google, Microsoft, they all had their own versions of video communication and conferencing. And so, I mean, it, it makes total sense. It reminds me a little bit of, you know, I had Rick Heitzman on the show and his one that he passed on was Google and he, in, in the Series B. And also how he described it, you know, Google at the time, I don't think they were making any money. It was very, very expensive that he said, and search was very competitive. And so, you know, when you hear from that perspective, it's like that is plausible. That makes sense. So, you know, and especially 
especially for consumer facing businesses or, you know, I guess Zoom is a bit of a hybrid, but you know, it's also tough to know what's actually going to hit. So what's the best advice that you've ever received? Well, I'll give you one personal and one professional. I grew up incredibly poor on welfare and food stamps. My dad had a seventh grade education, couldn't read. He was a truck driver when he can get work. And so I grew up in very, very humble beginnings. And my girlfriend's father, who had a college degree and MBA, he just said, Jeff, they can always take your job from you but they can't take your education. And my mom also pushed me to, you know, study hard. And so education changed my lot in life. I went from the bottom 10% to the top 1% because of education. So I tell my three kids the same. They could take your job. They can't take your education and don't ever let them take your self-worth. And so that was a really important personal lesson. And the one professionally was don't let them screw with your swing. A lot of people, particularly as an entrepreneur, you have a lot of naysayers. You know, think about Howard Schultz. He was turned down by 98 people to fund Starbucks. Or think about how many people turned down Facebook. If you're going to be an entrepreneur, you have to get accustomed to know you're dumb. You don't get it. That's silly, right? And you have to have that internal fortitude to not let them screw at your swing. You're going to get out there every day and you're going to have the self-belief. But like I said earlier, you also have to be flexible to say, I have a belief this is a big problem, but maybe there's a slightly different way of doing it. You have to be receptive to those ideas. You have to be a growth mindset and you have to be flexible in your opinion, but you have to be steadfast about the core principles and about your values and behaviors. Wow. I think those are both very, very inspiring. I love that quote of they can take your job and they can't take your education. Completely, completely agree. And as well as whenever you do anything that is unconventional or, you know, just how some people might think crazy, you're always going to have naysayers. And that's, of course, referring to if you actually go on and, and found a company. My last question for you is speaking about advice, what's one piece of advice that you have for founders? Build great teams. So many founders struggle with figuring out who the right person in the right job with the right skills at the right time and the right attitude. The other thing they struggle with is interviewing people is like, oh yeah, I got all this other stuff to do. I'll get to it. If you don't build out a team, you can't scale. If you don't bring people into your vision, you'll unlikely succeed. The other part is people struggle with bringing outside competencies and skills in because they'll be like, oh my God, these people have been with me since the very beginning of the company. I couldn't possibly layer them or change their title or fire them. But often if you're in a hyper growth company, the company is going to grow much faster than people's capability to learn and grow in their positions. Not all the time, but often. And so my biggest piece of advice is do not underestimate the importance of human capital and culture in the success of your endeavor. I think that's a really great point. And just to maybe add, you know, I had one investor that I think their piece of advice was when it comes to naming positions at the early stage, don't almost like give people too much, like too big of a position, have them grow into it per se, because you just never know during that hyper safe growth of what's going to actually happen and what kind of capabilities that you're going to need. I totally agree. I like very flat organizational structures and I hate title inflation. When I see a young startup that, you know, is raising 20 million bucks in their series A or B, and they have EVPs and SVPs and presidents, it's usually a recipe for failure down the road. Just call people the head of marketing, the head of business development, the head of technology, the head of operations. And later on, you can figure out what that actually means when you start to settle in into your own and you understand the opportunity in front of you. 
No, that's a great, great piece of advice. Well, Jeff, this has been so fun. Thanks so much for joining me. I totally enjoyed it as well, Mike. Thanks. I love your podcast and it's a pleasure to be on. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Jeff. I highly recommend following him on Twitter at JT Bold. You're also welcome to follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks. Thank you.